Welcome to the all-new FTBL podcast. In a huge week for Australia football, we talk to head of A-League, Greg O'Rourke. Welcome to FTBL Podcast. Happy to be here. It's been a quiet week for you? Yes, no, not really. Actually, it's been a very busy off-season. Yes, I can imagine. Um, but this week especially probably would have been a bit of uh, behind-the-scenes turmoil, I would have thought. Yeah, particularly for the uh, board and the EGM, but really for those who are running the league and the teams that uh, I work with. It was sort of, um, I wouldn't say business as usual, because you'll know there'll be strategic change with the new board, etc. But it's not really going to change too much of what we're set up to do for the launch of this year, that's for sure. I would imagine um, there are a few challenges ahead, though, because the second vote on uh, Tuesday was for a whole new A-League structure to be yeah. set up. Um, is that going to interfere with your work this season, do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure if I'd use the word interfere, but it'll definitely be something that we'll need to work with the new stakeholders in, right? I mean, it's been defined as something that's very collaborative and that they'll be working, you know, um, across member federations, across A-League clubs, across the PFA, across the Women's Council, but also, and importantly, um, with some of the new FFA directors or at least the new, the new board and FFA management. So I'm not sure what role I'll play in that uh, working group, if any. But, look, it's not too dissimilar than what we actually do anyway. I mean, we run the leagues, what we call the leagues, as a separate business unit anyway. Right. We have our own budgets. We have our own people accountable to run the leagues. And there's a very different set of people that run the national teams and there's a very different set of people that run the community. So it's not as if it will be a brave new world for a lot of our people, except it might be under a new uh, a new entity. Um, you obviously will be under a new governance, um, new board. Um, and, and the roles that we all play, if we play roles in the future, will you know be defined by others. But actually for the structural way it's set up, uh, I wouldn't think there'd be too much change. Last season there was a bit of um, controversy about the way that the marketing campaign played out. Um, was the lessons learned from that? Yeah, two things, and, and, and a couple of big changes came on the back of that. But let me just you know say that we agree with, with quite a lot of the criticism is that the launch particularly of the A-League and W-League in the prior season um, completely missed the mark. So when we sat down and actually tried to understand that um, and break it down, there was a couple of reasons and a couple of things we've done rather than necessarily... You know, try our best again, right? We made some really fundamental changes. So one of those fundamental changes was to delay the start of the A-League this year. So normally we would be starting the A-League this coming weekend. And we would have been trying to launch the A-League the day after the long weekends in Melbourne and uh, around the country of the AFL fans and the NRL fans. Now trying to take a limited marketing spend into that noisy place, marketplace, just was uh, suboptimal, right? Just couldn't couldn't actually get any carriage of our game in that space. And when you stand back, you go, well, that's logical, mm. right? But we were under, I wouldn't say pressure, but there was an obligation, um, particularly from a broadcast point of view, to, to move straight from one code to the other, effectively to go from winter to summer. Yeah. But we work collaboratively with the clubs, importantly, first and foremost, with the 10 A-League clubs, and then with Fox, put a position to them that we felt the best way for the league to get a good start was to have some clear air and to push the start back a couple of weeks. And all three parties clubs, the FFA and the Fox end up agreeing on that and that's why the A-League doesn't start until Friday the um, in, in, in three weeks if you like from, from the NRL weekend. Yeah. 
So that's one thing. The second thing is we completely changed our advertising agency. We felt that we needed a fresh approach and fresh people rather than some rehash. So we assigned our business to Saatchi and Saatchi and they've come on board and they're football people as well in there and we believe they've done a great job. They put a great pitch to us and you could tell that when you were getting a pitch, you were getting a pitch from football people. Um, so that starts. There's been a teaser released over the last couple of days, but the digital space will pick it up um, over the weekend and then basically from next week you'll start to see the TV ads as well. The other important thing is the launch itself. Last year we had a separate A-League launch, a separate W-League launch and a separate broadcast, the Fox Sports launch. Three separate events that actually diluted each other rather than sort of compounded. Mm. So again, we've worked out and we've agreed with the broadcaster and all the clubs, we're going to have one launch. It will be a launch with the A-League and the W-League in the same event, which is also the Fox launch. So, you know, with this view that one plus one plus one will equal much more than what they were as three independent things. So there's some very tangible things which are structural changes to our business, not only, you know, the least of the competition window changes, but also, you know, new agencies and new launch media and, you know, those sorts of things. So we're, we're much better set up than we were um, this time last year to bring it to the attention. The other things we're doing is that we're having um, the FFA Cup semi-finals in this weekend. So you'll see on Friday and Saturday night two two games. The Saturday night one has fell in our favour with a Sydney derby. Yep. Which is really going to get people thinking, okay, we're back. Here it is. It's not the A-League yet, but, geez, we're close and we'll be able to advertise that. And the following week there will be um, the Socceroos, the national team will be playing. We'll also be able to advertise that the uh, A-League is kicking off the following weekend. So... And these things just didn't happen by accident. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, the um, getting the semis on, I guess, fills that broadcast broadcasting gap that Fox probably were looking to fill between the NRL and A-League season. It, going forward, do you see perhaps um, the FFA Cup final actually being held that weekend before the A-League starts and sort of Community Shield-type way to kick off the season? Much debate on this, right? Much debate. So one of the debates is, at the moment that if it is on the weekend before, then it can't be on a weekend which is an international window, sure. right? So that that will then require some timing, right? But maybe to your point, it might be the week before the international window because there's no use, of course, if you have the final, but some of those teams are losing Socceroos, you know, for other duties. But to bring it back to a weekend, it's probably split. I'd say, Kevin, 50-50. Half the team believe that it should be on a weekend and really pump it up. Others actually, those who are really invested in the magic of the cup, actually see it as really the week, the weekday. It's been the weekday all the way through. It finishes with the weekday. And, you know, that's, that's the brand, if you like, right? And there's that debate going on. So, um, we'll see. We'll see what happens next year, but it'll be interesting to see the metrics on the weekend for the semi-final, mm-hmm. followed by the metrics for this year's final, which will be um, a midweek game in October, the last week of October. From a fan's perspective, you would think a weekend would be more uh, a better idea simply because if you're travelling, you've got more chance of actually getting there and back and uh, more chance of taking a family there as well. Yeah, there is a lot of... Um, conjecture about that and but metrics would show actually interesting enough that last year's um ffa cup final um on a weekend on a weekday was not well attended mm-hmm. but a couple of years ago when they were on weekdays was actually really well attended so again the, some of the guys that are for keeping the weekday are arguing that it's more club specific than it is day specific mm-hmm. about and venue specific, so I think there's probably a lot of different factors there. Really, to be honest, playing their own role. To take for example, let's say Adelaide um, win and Adelaide host, just as an example. If they were to do that, um, there is as much belief that Coopers could sell out 
on a weekend as it would midweek as well, mm. right? But some of the other teams, if they were hosting and holding midweek, might have different sort of city implications. So anyway, it, it's an active conversation. Any further thoughts on uh, one specific venue for the final? At this point in time, I believe and we believe that actually having the right to host through the draw, this year you'll notice that we actually will draw for the hosting city, which we didn't do before because prior to this, the FFA had to make the decision as to who was going to host what city and it was always um, quite a negative um, start to the week leading up to it, if you like, because the clubs that didn't host were thinking, well, this is unfair, and then there was this debate, which is not really the way you want to start the marketing of the final. Yeah. So this year, to add some excitement to that and some randomness, if you like, we're actually going to continue with the drawing of two balls from the um, from the pot, if you like, to say that this will be the host city. So that'll add some more excitement. Um, the commercial and the marketing guys are less excited about it because they actually have to quickly turn everything around and build um, seating plans for all the different venues and all that sort of stuff. But... You know, that's where we currently believe. There was um, some talk about us having a central position like some of the other codes do where they've got, and, you know, what they do, obviously, with the FA Cup in uh, in England. But at the moment, this sort of, you know, the ability to host and ability to bring close to your own fans and all that sort of stuff seems to be um, the stronger of the positions. Um, going forward into the new season, you've got the, the new ad campaign. Um, where heroes are made. Yep. It's a little bit similar to the Hyundai uh, made in the A-League. Yeah, campaign, well, I, I think, I don't want to say this about our major sponsor, right, but, I mean, it's a matter of um, the where heroes were made was actually created by the Sachi and Sachi guys when they pitched for our um, business, if you like, right? So... You know, there's there's actually, you know, we've now had a look that there's other codes as well as other um, companies, if you like, that are using this sort of um, link to heroism, except like that. But to suggest there's any link between um, Hyundai as our naming rights supporter and we just basically cut and paste it um, is not, not correct because Saatchi brought this to us. And when we, when we saw it, we loved it. I personally love their campaign and... Um, We've shared it with our naming rights partners and we've shared it with quite a few other people, but um, I think it's more coincidence than anything else. But um, it's a genuine um, creation from the agency in the pitch. And I, I, I think the message is good that, you know, uh, the, uh, there are heroes that can be made from the A-League. I'm just also a bit confused about what uh, Tim Cable and Amy Duggan are actually doing. In the, in, are they judges? Are they... Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, so the way <laughs> I, suspect, I suspect it's going to become clearer as we see more of the ads. yeah, yeah, it will, right? So, the where heroes were made was come from the data that would suggest that unlike some other codes in Australia, that actually the non-fan, right, which is you know we don't want to focus completely on the non-fan, but we also want to grow the game. So you actually have to think about. Firstly, focus on the fans who love the game, but then think about how do you grow the game. Well, to grow the game, you actually have to get some name recognition out there, right? And we found that outside of Tim Cahill, who, you know, as, as everyone knows, who's a fan, doesn't even play in the A-League anymore, he's now playing in India, and outside of Sam Kerr, that a whole lot of other names were not well known. And therefore, we are going to start to get more names known and through this Where Heroes Are Made campaign, and you'll start to see it on bus shelters and a whole lot of other things, it'll actually do two things to us or for us. And one thing is that it'll actually start to reinforce the other big names as we see them. And when I say we see them, the clubs. The clubs were the ones that nominated the two or three players that they wanted to actually put forward for this campaign. Mm. And, you know, they want those individuals, the Bruno Fornarolis or whatever of the world, the Riley McGrees of the world, if you like, just have those individuals put forward where people can go, oh, yeah, I know him. He's the guy that scored that goal. Yeah, I know him. He's the striker for Melbourne. You know, those sorts of things that 
we can then start to pull it together. Now, where does Tim and Amy come in? Well, what was very clear last year, if you take the example of Daniel Arzani, was that whilst a lot of you know keen fans knew of Daniel Arzani and his journey outside of Melbourne City, it wasn't really until he became a socceroo, a fringe socceroo, and then he was signed and all the debate about whether he was going to sign for this country or another country, etc., that he really evolved and you know, landed on the scene. So this campaign is two things. It's here's the three players that we wish to hero from each of the clubs to start, but also here's two people that are well-known, you know, previous socceroo, probably, you know, best-known socceroo for the last generation, and then Amy, who was also uh, Matilda, previous Matilda, actually having a look and saying, oh, here's the ones that evolving. Here's the, here's the new Azani, if you like, that's evolved, so that we didn't stick with a static amount of people to hero at round one, and then by, by round 27, we hadn't um, allowed for any evolution. Mm. <clears throat> right. That's where it's going to come okay. from, without giving too much more away. Right? So it's a long-term campaign this time? Yeah. Because previously to. we've seen you know campaigns run for like five days, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> suddenly no. uh, the shutters come down. Yeah, no, we've put a lot more money into it is the first thing, right? Yeah. And a lot more thought into it. And we do think... Um, it will connect because it will connect not only for the things that I've done, um, spoken about, but also it will connect from where people have originally come from and how, you know, um, I'm trying to explain it without giving the campaign away, mm. right? But, you know, to say this is where Rogic was made, you know, right. you know, this is where Aaron Moy was made and these sorts of things and actually allow for the grassroots, the NPL club journey that they went on, the A-League journey they went on and the Socceroos journey they went on before they went then to the European club journey, that you start to talk about this path and you start to talk about this young guy or this young lady were in this space, they went all through this journey and actually give young people, young children the ability to say, well, I could start there and end up there as well. Why couldn't I? Because that's what Sam did and that's what Tim did and... That's what, you know, Yedinak did and these sorts of things. So we want to actually play to the strengths of our code, which is that you can be basically go on this career path, which extends beyond the borders of this country, mm. um, and be proud of that as opposed to suggest that we lose players to the other side of the world, actually say be proud of the fact that they're on this journey and they're now on some of the biggest stages in the world in our code. Yeah. Unlike other codes, perhaps, where uh, your best prospect is Collingwood. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, it goes back, you brought up a, a, a key point, which is a huge bugbear and has been for a long time within the soccer community, football community, is reaching new fans when we've still not actually embraced football, yeah. all the football yeah. fans in this country. Are, are there ever going to be any steps to really bring... Um, what has been called old soccer back into the fold more? Yeah, there, there has, but it's it's a difficult challenge, right? Because, I mean, my history is before I was working here at the FFA, I worked in the State Federation. As you know, I was on a board of Football New South Wales. And I spent my time there as a chairman for over four years with you know, what is referred to as old soccer. And it was actually one of the most gratifying times of my time in football, right, to work with these clubs that had these volunteers, if you like, these communities behind them, this passion behind them to actually bring the whole thing together. And a lot of the stuff about all the dramas that they will have between, you know, remembering histories from the nations from which they came, most of them were myth, Mm. right? Most of it was myth. Um, and they were just people who had emigrated from other countries who came here, loved the code, set it up, promoted it, and, and basically were the people responsible for the pathways of all the players that ultimately became A-League players and, and well before that for the pathways of all the people that were the Socceroos and to some degree the Matildas, but definitely the Socceroos, most of them, if not all of them, were coming out of these um, 
you know, these, what, what was referred to as old soccer clubs. Mm. I, we, we need to go back and get that, but it's not easy because not only from that side of the fence, if you could put it that way, that they're not promoters of the A-League, some of them are quite clearly detractors of the A-League. Um, and you only have... Given the, uh, the club ID policy that yeah. FFA has, it's hardly surprising. You actually, I mean, the, not you personally, but the FFA goes out its way to alienate these clubs yeah. and, their, and, their, and where they came from and the, who, the people who support them. Yeah, look, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I, I understand the position you put there because I, the NCIP to which you referred to is only but one um, piece of this pie. Right. It's, it's, it's the most visible part. Feel. When you've got to put sellotape over the, the uh, a club, a tiny, tiny club flag in the back of a shirt, that, that that's gone beyond the realms of acceptability, isn't it? If you go back to the press statement that David Gallup put out as the CEO of FFA a couple of weeks ago about the NCIP, in that press statement, David said that the NCIP had been long debated in the halls of FFA, long debated in the um, management team of FFA, because like you and like many other people out there, I thought that was beyond the pale. And it was, in fact, more trouble than it was worth. And actually, from a PR point of view and a engagement point of view, it was disengaging, right? But like most people understand... There's a policy in place that you have to apply, but there's this common sense approach that you have to take, right? So when that decision came to me about, oh, we'll have to change the shirts, right? Tell them that, you know, they've, they're breaching the NCIP, tell them they have to go and get new shirts done and all this sort of stuff. I was like, you know what? It's that small. If we're saying we can't breach the policy, just put a bit of tape over it and move on because we knew at the time that we were actually right in the process of announcing that the NCIP was going to be radically reformed, right? Now, when I said I don't agree with you necessarily on this, remember, for those who do remember anyway, the NCIP was actually brought to the FFA by the member federations many years ago when they were struggling in their jurisdictions with these challenges and asked the FFA to put a national policy together so that they could have some um, consistency. So it was not necessarily him or her, and I don't want to sort of go back over the blame except to say we've now got the line in sand, we're reviewing it, and actually with the same jurisdictions we consulted with in the past, we are now back with the member federations in this space, and I'm sure that we'll land at a position which will stop the disengagement <coughs> on this issue at least, right? I think we've got such a colourful, multicultural, multinational past. I really feel it's something we should be celebrating uh, as a code. It's something that does separate us from many other codes. And, you know, we had to make a break from what had gone before, perhaps, in the NSL and old soccer then. But now we've got that distance between us. We can celebrate where we came from, surely. I agree. Absolutely agree. And, look, I'm, I'm sure the move from... You know, the old to the new was not simply about um, background. It was to do with commercial viability, mm. broadcasting yeah. numbers. It was to do with you know, a level of professionalism, and that doesn't mean that they're unprofessional. What it means is that most people that were running NPL clubs of those days were doing two jobs. They were doing a job to which they got um, employed, you know, in, in their normal industry and some of them were, you know, self-employed and then they were trying to run clubs at the same time. It just, there wasn't enough money in the game for people to start paying full-time administrators, groundkeepers, venue staff, etc. So you actually had some really genuine people working their backsides off for 80, 90, 100 hours a week, um, you know, getting the grounds ready, cleaning the amenities, working the canteen, and then sort of running their 40, 50-hour-a-week jobs to which they had to get paid and look after their family. So there's there was a need to create a professional league for all those other reasons to be able to compete, particularly with AFL and NRL and cricket that have been around for 100 years in a much more professional state. Yes, there was the, dis- the discussions around background and, you know, there was some things said either side of the table, I'm sure, that were not so nice. But 
now that we have this professional league in place, and if that was the primary intent, to make sure we have that in full time and pathways and all that sort of stuff, it is, it is overdue that we go back and celebrate from which we came. Yeah, great. Um, talking of renewing the uh, relationship with fans, active support, again, yeah. another big topic uh, amongst fans. What I have heard from various sources that you've been in contact with fan groups yeah. over the past few months, where are we at with that and how? what do you see the way forward for that being? Well, I, I think um, I can confirm that I have been in contact with some of the active groups. Probably the ones that I've been talking to are the ones that um, have felt most aggrieved, right? So a, a matter of really investing time not across the board with 10 fan groups but actually going and talking to those ones who feel... Um, that they're just not on the same page with the FFA, not on the same place with police and security, and really investing time to understand, which means that's multiple conversations, right? And without being disparaging to some of the small clubs with small active fan bases, the ones that are really going to uh, turn the tide for us uh, are the big guys, the guys that, you know, let's speak openly, if you would talk about uh, the Wanderers and their fan groups, you know, particularly RBB, who at the end of uh, last season um, made a conscious decision not to turn up um, to a couple of home games. These are the things that were the very essence that built the brand, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I still remember going um, as a fan, well before I was paid to work in football, um, as a fan to Parramatta Stadium and knowing that, you know, these things were going to be sellouts or near sellouts and that... I was going to be watching um, football on the pitch, but I was also going to be watching and actually, importantly, participating in the active fandom and the singing and the chanting and the pointing and all those sorts of things and turning my back and on the game and all those sorts of things because what that club brought to um, you know the game and to Parramatta Stadium at that point in time was an, a full experience, right? Yeah. A full experience. Um, and they, that was replicated um, to a large degree on the other side at the Cove. It was particularly the derbies. It was replicated in Melbourne, um, again, primarily with uh, Victory, but um, also City continued to grow that space as well. Now, if you define that as the essence of your game and actually the point of difference between our code and others, that not only do you go to the game to watch the game, but you go to enjoy this whole game experience like they do in many other parts of the world with our code, then when you lose it, not only is it drastic to lose it, but actually you lose your point of difference, mm. right? You really... and. And if you think that this is my unique selling property is this hologram experience and I no longer have it, then what do you have, mm. right? Of course, you've got the quality of the players and you've got the game itself, but that's that's not everything that the fan is looking for these days, right? They're actually looking to part with their well-earned money for a full experience, particularly young families, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I went and spoke to... Um, uh, leadership members of some of these groups, and I mean, it's a bit difficult to talk about this because I I know that these fan groups um, want to get back and want to get the thing fixed, but at the same time, some of them don't want to be um, seen to be engaging <laughs> with the FFA, right? Yeah. Because it's a um, you know, it's not what they're really about, right? Yeah. They're not really about um, sort of engaging with the governing body, but what they are. What they are really focused on is is for the FFA to take the barriers out of the way that got in the way for them to be able to go to the football, enjoy it, don't feel threatened, don't feel like they're under a microscope and that they're sort of too... It's just become too difficult is mm. what they told me, right? Between you and the police and this, it just became too difficult. Yeah. And I, the things I went to enjoy, I was no longer enjoying because... I do all this work off off the park to organise the 
the chants and I do all this stuff off the park to organise TIFOs and all these sorts of things. But when I got to the game, I just felt really restricted, right? <coughs> so we've done a lot of work, right? So we went and spoke to the police in New South Wales and also in Victoria. We, we had fact-based discussions about the amount of uh, police officers deployed, the units that are deployed, which, you know, obviously different units like right squad and um, the mounted squad and all these sorts of things and how and the why these numbers come about and that. So without going into too much depth, a lot of the um, conversations with the police forces have been very, very positive and I'm expecting that there will be a very different policing model both in Sydney and Melbourne as long as we continue with what have been excellent incident rates over the last two years, right? Because, you know, these police forces um, are risk-based. They're risk-based policing. And if they feel that in history that they have a game and this happens, then they have to um, man up, you know, form up the amount of numbers against what might happen again. But what we've seen over the last two years is... A dramatic improvement in those metrics. Dramatic. It's like just gone from 100 to nearly zero in respect of um, the behaviour and, in fact, the incidental evidence with conversations with the police and other security forces is that our game has no more or less incidences than any other game and, in fact, versus some codes in some states, they would prefer to have our numbers of incidents rather than the ones they get. The difference we have is we only have to have one incident and it appears to be amplified through the media that actually have their broadcast arrangements with the competing codes, right? And I don't want to play the victim here around our code, but it's for us to fix that perception, right? And we have. So I've spoken to them. I've met with the venues. I've met with the spectator marshals, um... I've met with a number of other people that supply security services and, um, you know, we're set up for much more success in that area. Of course, there's still a lot of responsibility on these fans, um, but the fans have given me a commitment. As they say, you know, we're not, uh, we're not angels, hmm. but at the same time, um, you know, we're not anything like we're painted to be. So... We'll continue to be well-behaved. We'll continue to focus on what we're here for, which is to bring fandom to the game. As long as you take some of the barriers away and you support us with your conversations with the authorities, we believe that the season we're just about to start will be much better in all the aspects of fandom. In terms of the uh, the police operations at stadiums, there was a couple of things. One, when I was in uh, Russia, there was... Six cops in every street corner throughout the city that we were in, Kazan. Um, When you went to the stadiums, and I went to five different matches, there wasn't a single cop inside. Yeah. Uh, It was all manned by stewards in volunteers' uh, garb. Um, When you go to A-League matches, there's cops everywhere, and not only are they there, they generally tend to be intimidating and inflammatory instead of placating uh, or trying to calm down situations. Um, is that something they're going to address? Yeah, and clearly. So the, the facts would show, just, just not really to correct you, Kevin, but just to clarify a question there, right? There's only seven games a year out of 130. There's only seven games a year where that visibility is as you've just explained, right? So let's put the other 123 games that are played, which is a significant amount of games, 123 games, which is policed exactly the same as if it would be any of the other alternate codes, right? So we're talking about 5% of the games, right? I think that's an important point, right? Because young families can know that if they go to 95% of our games, they should see the same level of policing and visibility of policing than they would if they were going to code A or code B. But of the 5% you're talking about, and uh, 
let's just take one of the Sydney-based ones, just take the Derby, mm. right? So if you went to the Allianz Derby last year, you would have seen four or five ride squad cars um, top to tail just outside on Driver Avenue with their lights flashing, right? Now, you won't see that at any other code, in my opinion. Mm. And that's the conversation that I had with the New South Wales police. Their view is that actually by doing such, they were creating a safe environment and that they were suggesting to families, come, because we're here and, uh, you know, we're going to look after you and make safe passage and all that sort of stuff. And as a result of that, um, you know, Philly stands, right? So my view... It's not really, it is my view, but I mean, my view's not really that important. It's the view of the fan and the family who we had hundreds, if not thousands of touch points with, who said, you know what? We disagree with you. Actually, we believe if we're sort of pulling up there on Driver Avenue and we see flashing lights, my children see flashing lights, they don't see that as protective. They see that as a problem because mm. they only ever see flashing lights at accidents or things where people are getting hurt. That's it. Right? Yeah. So we've spoken to the police and they are going to change the model. I don't want to necessarily talk about that publicly because it's in the interests of public safety that police plans are police plans, but they have agreed to change their, uh, their model. In Melbourne, I can use the words that they've used, um, they're going to change their visibility model, right? which is a bit like what you said in Russia, right? They were visible on corners. They were visible um, on the way to the stadiums, but in the stadiums they were only there at the bag searches. That was it. Yeah. Now, if there had been an incident in Kazan or whatever, I'm sure they would have been 50 metres away, but oh, they, weren't, sure. they yeah. weren't visible, Yeah. right? And that makes a big difference. Yeah, so the Melbourne police have suggested that they will, A... Um, lower their numbers. Um, again, not um, the right thing to do to discuss by what or however and by percentages, but they will reduce the numbers. But the important thing is they will actually reduce the visibility of the policing. So the police will still be there mainly and, and in numbers pretty similar to what they used to be, but they will not necessarily be standing there so that the families can walk in and feel... Um, the best of both worlds, right? They don't have this visual, but at the same time, they know that if there is a drama, um, and as I said, last year and the year before, there was hardly any dramas mm. anywhere across our game, that, um, you know, people can feel as safe as they would going to any other code, any other game, any other time of day, any other time of the year. Just going back to uh, to Russian Socceroos, one of the things obviously that came up from that was our lack of strikers. Uh, there is a theory, mainly mine, I think, to be honest, that that's a result of our own partial success of the A-League, that we're a relatively richly compared to what we used to be. Yeah. We can import reasonable strikers, uh, and as a result, they're squeezing out Australian players and the lack of expansion of the A-League has uh, reduced opportunities. What can be done to address that? Well, I think your observation, firstly, is is completely correct. Right? So I don't think it's just your view. I actually think not only is it the view of many, but I actually think factually it's correct. Mm-hmm. Right? If you think about marquees and you think about um, visa players, etc., um, most, if not all of them, are the sexy strikers, right? Because... Not too many of the clubs see themselves as having a brand and having a flair that can bring people to the game. With respect to those who play in the midfield and in the back, right, or as, even as a keeper, there's not a thirst to go and get a sexy left back, right? Now, there is one or two so um, in the league, but... Most of them are strikers. Mm. Right? If you think about some of the big teams, um, they've always attracted the big strikers. Now, 
a couple of things we need to do. One is we need to expand, and I'm sure we'll get onto that a bit later, but expansion will provide other opportunities for more strikers. The other thing is that these A-League clubs now, particularly the New South Wales ones, but the other um, six over time are building academies, right? So um, the Wanderers, Sydney FC, Central Coast Mariners and Newcastle Jets have been for the last three years building academies down to, you know, even under 13s, under 14s. So by building up those in the club, which they didn't have before, right, that what we'll find is these strikers will start to come up through the age groups and things like that. Now, that's not a generational thing. That's only really like four or five years away. So I think that what you'll see from the harvesting, if you like, of the academies, similar to you do see in other parts of the world, you'll see homegrown strikers coming through. But at the moment, we're sort of complementing our lack of strikers by using that vacancy, if you like, to bring in our marquees. So I just think it's a matter of time. And I think we've got the infrastructure in place with all the A-League clubs now moving into an academy space that these homegrown strikers, as well as all the other players, goalkeepers, etc., but homegrown strikers to address your issue about the perceived shortage in that area will be much more homegrown than they have been um, in the last sort of five or six years. Um Transfer fees uh, between player uh, between uh, elite clubs and more importantly decent transfer fees to NPL sides is that something that's ever actually going to uh, make it off the agenda? This is a um, a whole of game issue and and again I'm not trying to flick this back from the FFA to anyone else but again just the honest truth right if firstly there's a collective bargaining agreement between the clubs, FFA, and, you know, that was brokered with the PFA. The PFA's view on this, and I don't want to speak for them, but just to sort of repeat uh, John's position on this, is that they believe there needs to be more money in the game to actual players first before there is transfer fees paid between club owners, right? So that's why they were accepting of the change we made for this season which was to have loans for Australian players under 23 to be able to move from club to club. So the loan policy, if you like, was put in place, but under the understanding that there was no money to be moved between the clubs on that. So it's the first step to say, rather than have a young guy sit on the sideline at, say, Sydney FC, and he sits there for, you know, 20 out of the 27 games and doesn't get any time, that if another club up the road or in another state even has a problem in that position, he then can go up and do that. So that's one thing. The second thing, though it happens all over the world, players have come some concern that they uproot their families or themselves, their partners or whatever, and they go and move thinking they can go and play in Sydney or Perth or whatever, and then there's a transfer and they're uprooting the whole family and they're, or, you know, themselves, their partner or whatever, and their partner might have a job and, you know, all those sorts of things. So there's that issue to be dealt with. Now, obviously that happens all over the world, right? Mm. But in Australia, it would be new, right, for that sort of stuff to be done in our code. And, and the final, the final thing on this is there is now, we're in the last year of this collective bargaining agreement. It expires on the 30th of June, 2019. So we're now starting to work with the PFA and now that the EGM has been sorted, we hope to then move with the clubs as well, who of course the major party to this CBA, to design a new CBA for the following season. Now, on the table, it's already been well reported that the salary cap, transfers loan systems, payment thereof potentially will all be on the table for discussion. So um, I would say you will see this evolve and we'll make a whole game decision, um, you know, in the next six months really for this by the 30th of June at least to say that this is our new policy for the length of that CBA. <clears throat> Obviously um, expansion is key to all of this and... Huge spanner in the works uh, from the events of Tuesday by the looks of things. Yeah. Um, have you got any idea? I spoke to certain people and they seem to think 
there's still confusion over whether the announcement's going to be delayed or whether expansion itself is going to be delayed. You got any in- indication yet? Yeah, well, it's I'm in a difficult place, right? Because one of the one of the three leads on this um, from the FFA, right? So you know, myself and two of my colleagues here are sort of responsible for putting this paper to the board for approval. Now, up until this week, our uh, intent was to put it to the board in the October meeting, right, which is um, the 16th of October, to be specific, for approval and then for us to go out and do the announcement. Now, as you rightfully say, the spanner in the works was that I'm not exactly sure whether or not the board that will meet in October, probably for the last time, will want to even make the decision, right? But that's a matter for them, and I haven't had time since the dust has settled. Not really, I haven't had time. I haven't made time since the dust has settled from Tuesday to actually reach out to the board and find what their position is. And I can't speak on behalf of them, Mm. right? And then, of course, you will have other stakeholders who will believe that now that um, Stephen has announced he's not going to restand, and then it's reported in the press um, as quotes from other directors that they will consider their positions as well. Um, you'll have other stakeholders suggest that it would be logical to wait for the next board to be constituted to go through the work that the FFA management team has done and then make their decision based on that. So. Um, <clears throat> I'm very clear on the options that face me, but I'm not very clear at this point in time as to what that board will decide, right? So what I can say is that we're we're continuing to push on with the work. Mm -hmm. We're We're pushing on to present to the board as we had intended, but it will be up to that board to decide what they wish to do. Um, And we should all know by the... Seventeenth of October, as to what that is, and I'm sure um, if it is that we're going to push ahead and announce expansion, then we'll do so. And if it's that we're going to delay the decision um, or delay expansion or whatever, all the options you just put to me, Kevin, then um, you know we will communicate that to the bidders very quickly. But at this point in time, I haven't heard anyone say that they don't want to expand, mm. even all the stakeholders that were in dispute, if you like, with the existing board have said to me privately and also in our working groups that expansion of the A-League is a must. So what I would say is it's not going to put expansion off. That's clearly, in my thing, an option that is not, um, not even to be considered by anyone. What is your criteria What's your main criteria for uh, successful clubs for the yeah. expansion bids? There's sort of there's different levels of detail on this, right? But if I just stay at maybe 100 metres, right, and, you know, just a helicopter view, if you like, mm-hmm. and talk about the, the main four or five. The first one is what we're saying is what is your vision for the club? But if you go a little bit lower for that is what are you going to bring to the A-League? You know, what do you do from a sense of your community, your geographic community? What do you do from your footballing community? If you have a history, what are you going to bring to grow the game past your current um, supporter base? If you haven't got a history, what are you going to do to create one? But the fundamental part of point one is what are you going to do to expand the A-League from a love of the game and interested in the game, right? We're not just looking for an 11th and 12th team so we can play more games. We actually are going to parts of the Australian geography, the Australian community, that is not engaged with the A-League. So you'll see that there's some bids that are actually in new geographies, growing geographies, growth corridors, which is why they're still in the process. You'll see there's some bids that actually sit over very rich historical footballing um, NPL clubs, some just over one, some over many, um, which is why they're still in the process. And then you'll see some bids that are sitting in geographies, which have been primarily geographies given to other codes. So 
again, that's why they're still in the process. So that's the first thing. Um, the second, third, and fourth are much shorter answers, but the because I think that's the primary thing for me, right? The second thing is where's your venue, where you're playing, uh, what's that infrastructure like, and if you don't have a stadium, what's your strategy to get one? Um, that's easier in NRL towns, if I could put it that way, than it is in AFL towns because of the the rectangular shape of grounds. So in Melbourne, of course, you're not going to pop up a venue, whereas in New South Wales, you can play an existing. Uh, NRL venues that are not owned by those codes, so they're owned by communities and clubs and govern effectively, that you can share. Um, the other thing is, can you afford an A-League club, right? Because there's a, this is sometimes a big um, gulf between aspiration and reality. And people believe, yeah, I could do it and it's going to cost me a couple of million and I'll do this. That's not the reality, right? To most football clubs around the world, not just our code, but other codes as well, are not run for a profit. So it's about how much can you continue to invest in this code. Um, some are run because, you know, people have been successful and want to give back to their communities. Others are run um, as part of a global enterprise. Um, others are run really, for some cases, nearly like a, um, I wouldn't say a hobby, but it's sort of like, you know, I've been successful in my business now, I'm going to run a sporting club and all that. All those things are fine, but what you don't want is someone to want to apply for a licence like they do a jet ski, you know, and then just have it for like one year and then, you know, <laughs> want, to, want to sell it Walk again, around. right? Yeah. Absolutely. You want somebody who's fully invested in the game and fully invested in their community. The bit that's really important to me is to make sure that people that love the game love the community to where the game is, right? We don't want necessarily just people coming in and picking a postcode because they think that that's going to land um, against other metrics. Then that leads me to the, the next point, which is who owns the club? We've got some really good models, right? Like if you take the Melbourne Victory model, a number of business people, successful business people, they get on really well, that actually just have their threads in that community, right, from a government point of view, commercial point of view, relationship point of view, cross-code relationships, right? You go to some of those um, uh, dinners and lunches they have down in Melbourne, there always, there's a number of AFL people in the room and all that. They're really well connected. They self-govern. They all put in a certain amount of money that they can afford and they're very successful. That's one model. There's another model that we've got some really successful single owners as well. So we just need to understand the who to make sure that we're dealing with people that that want to be in Australia and invest in Australian football. Um, you know, probably spoken enough on that. But they're the sorts of three or four things, if you like, that are really important to us. License fee didn't get a mention there? That comes down to the affordability, yeah. right? Uh, Again, to continue to be honest, as I, as I hopefully am all the time, the licence fee for us is not the biggest check wins. Let me be very clear on that. But it also has to fund the bid, right? So you've sort of got this gatekeeper, if I could use that language, or this hurdle, whatever corporate word you want to use, that the licence fee has to clear. Once you have cleared that and it becomes that there's enough money then in the um, ecosystem to fund the 11th and the 12th team, then all those other factors that I've just gone through become much more important because you've sort of got the ticket and then, well, who are you? What can you do all for the game, right? But the guy who signs the biggest check, I can assure you, will not be the um, the preferential um, licence owner. I'm getting the wind up from Adam. One last question. This time next year, you look back on this season, what will be the key metric that will show that you was a success? I think it'll be a soft metric rather than a hard metric. I, the, and, and what does that mean? You know, we can measure things like hard metrics, like broadcast numbers in an environment where broadcast is falling around the world. We can um, measure things like attendances from a hard measure. But the soft measure actually, for me, needs to be that the interest and the love for the game has returned from those clubs, from their fans, you know, where 
yes, okay, if that happens, the attendance metrics will rise and all those sorts of things. Um, there's a whole lot of other things that cause attendances to fall, such as Wanderers being displaced and now Sydney FC will be displaced and both the two major Sydney clubs will be displaced from the home venue. So all those will be hard metrics, right? But from a soft metric to think, are the Wanderers fans back? Are they now loving the game? Is it that experience again? Are the Victory fans back? Are they? Is, is that stadium jumping again? Are uh, the City fans growing? Are uh, the Sydney um, FC fans, you know, managed to migrate to Leichhardt? Did they manage to migrate to Jubilee? Did they manage the shift to SCG for their big games and, and keep their numbers and keep it pulsing? Those sorts of things, those soft metrics will be really important for us to do. The other thing will be the measure of the match day experience from the fan. So the match day experience for us has declined year on year where people have said, you know, the pre-game entertainment is not what we would expect in, you know, 2018. The halftime entertainment is getting a little bit dull, Greg. It's the same thing every every single game, every single week. No one wants to watch ads on the big screen, you know. What are you doing on the big screen that can entertain the crowd before the ball's kicked off, you know, that sort of thing. So those metrics, which might sound a bit soft and hard, I think if I look back and we've won that war, then I think actually the hard metrics follow. I take it um, the music at uh, halftime, at goal kicks and corners is off the agenda after Definitely, the... uh, definitely off the agenda, <laughs> but... Um, that was yeah. some horror, some... Uh, Vociferous feedback you got on that? Yeah, you know, I was, I'd say nearly venomous, but, um, <laughs> you know, I was, I mean, the whole idea about this was that there was a conversation with certain journalists where um, I was talking like I am today with you, Kevin, about the active fans and what we're going to do to bring them back. The question was uh, raised at the time, well, that's great for the four clubs you've just spoken about, but what about club five, six, seven and eight that doesn't have these big boisterous active numbers that will come and start chanting and all that sort of stuff. What are you also going to do for these clubs that have an average number below 10,000 attend their home matches but are in stadiums of 50,000 plus? What, what are you going to do? You can't solve their issues with your um, initiatives around the active fans. And I said, um, and I don't deny saying it, I said to them that I had just been to a rugby league final match um, a couple of days earlier than the media conference and that I had noticed what for me was a very much a um, big lift in the amount of music that was played in the game, but in the game, not pre-game. It was like played at knock-ons, drop kicks, scrums, all those sorts of things. We saw the grand final. And we saw it at the grand final, absolutely. But I, before the grand final, they were doing exactly the same thing in their final series, right? right. And I'd been to one of the first games in the final series and I'd seen that. And I said, um, maybe we should consider supplementing the entertainment, particularly for those clubs who've got those challenges of um, small average crowds in big stadiums with potentially some music at dead plays like they're doing in the NRL, maybe around corners and goal kicks. Um, so... That became the headline, O'Rourke's going to play music at corners and goal kicks, as opposed to O'Rourke's completely focused on getting back the active fans, which really built the atmosphere. But in the smaller clubs or the clubs without that, there's some thought about how do we supplement that. Mm. Now, that context, from all the people who I've supplied the context to, have gone, well, that makes perfect sense that you said that. But actually out of context and chopped to say nothing about active fans and just talk about music at goal kicks made me look like a goose, mm. right? And um, Twitter let me know that. And, uh, <laughs> I can assure you. Soccer Twitter particularly just sort of ripped me. You know, but it was it was disappointing, not from the feedback, but disappointing then that people said, well, he's completely forgotten about active fans and the real thing that make the essence and the brand of this game. Yeah. When actually in the same sentence I'd actually said that but it had been edited after the actives are gone. So then people start to say things like, oh, we don't really get football. You don't really get it because if you're thinking about music at goal kicks and you're not even thinking about active fans, yeah. you're obviously clueless, right? But actually if it's reported that I said this, followed by that, 
most people would go, well, some people probably say, still say you're clueless, but other people would say, <laughs> at least now I have the context of what was really said. Yeah. Yeah. Excited for the new season? Absolutely. Absolutely excited. We've worked really hard in here with the clubs. Despite what you see at the board level and the stakeholder owner level, the CEOs of all 10 A-League clubs and the Canberra W-League club and their teams, myself with the CEOs and my team, wide in with their teams, has never been more collaborative. That's the irony, really, of where we are. We are actually better than we've ever been in respect of working together. So... You know, the belief that the clubs and the FFA working in this operational execution, if you like, of the A-League and the W-League should be better than we've ever seen it before, despite the stuff that, you know, is well reported that happens around EGMs, etc. Excellent. Thanks, Greg. Thanks very much. Thank you. Oh!